Welcome to Behind the Standards with United Rentals. This is the podcast where we discuss construction safety, typically trench excavation and confined space safety, but also other topics that deal with general job site safety as well. I am Rick Plosinski, Customer Training Specialist, and this is part two of a special two-part episode where fellow trainers Dee Hernandez and Eric Partenheimer break down the confined space in construction standard and the key terms associated with that standard. If you missed the first episode, you can find it at www.trenchsafetyevents.com. We pick up the conversation when we are about to discuss the personnel associated with safe entry into confined spaces, the authorized entrant, the attendant, and the entry supervisor. Not only does the standard specify the host controlling and entry employers, but they also talk about the people that need to be responsible for that entry, specifically talking about the authorized entrant attendants and the entry supervisors, and each of them have specific duties as well. Well, you have your entry and your authorized entry, but remember, no one can go in there until the supervisor, entry supervisor, signs that uh, permit, that everything is fine. Now, I'm going to start with the supervisor's responsibility because it's very, very important that they verify, verify that everything has been done before signing that permit, all the equipment is in place and all the precautions have been taken, all the safety measures, you know, have been taken as well. Uh, that supervisor has a lot of responsibilities. I see, I see it so many times where these supervisors just sign off and assume that everything has been completed. Force ventilation being used, monitors are, you know, good to go and so forth. I always tell them, verify. Don't just assume, verify. Without his signature on there, they're not allowed to go in there. So that's where your authorized entrant comes in once it's signed. And that authorized entrant, before going in there, has the right to see those readings. And I always tell everyone, do not tell them no. They have that right. It's like when someone's going to drive me around, I want to make sure they have a driver's license, right? I mean, it's a little more dangerous than that, but I give them an example. You know, you want them to have their driver's license with them. And in this case, you want to make sure that all the tests were done prior to entry. So he has that right to read them. He has the right to also ask you for a new reading prior to entry. And that entrant also, my whole thing is he has to be able to communicate with that attendant. It's very important that they're able to communicate with each other. Of course, uh, if the attendant finds that there's a hazard or, you know, hazard to those uh, employees and he notifies them, they must get out immediately. That's another point that I want to touch because it's once the attendant tells you get out, they see some, uh, you know, hazard or danger that could possibly affect them, get out immediately. I always tell them there's no tool, there's no material more important than your life. Drop it and get out immediately. To kind of piggy on that, I'll piggyback on that also, D, is with the authorized entrant. I, I always bring it up in my class. I ask, who is this position normally? Who who defines that? And typically in our industry, especially, it's the smallest new guy. Right? Here's what you're doing. <laughs> Go in there and get it done. And that's typically who that is. Mm -hmm. And there's so much more to it that people don't quite understand. They just figure the new guy's going to go in and, and do this. But the training aspect, and you alluded to it, that's huge when it comes to the entrant, because pretty much everything that they touch and utilize, they are going to have to be trained on that. 
documented training. It's not just, okay, let's take five minutes and show them this. If a compliance officer asks, has he been trained on this? Yep. Can I see the documentation? Well, no, we did it. It didn't happen. And to Rick's point, it's a show me organization. So everything that we do, and that includes training of that authorized entrant, that's how we can make that term that they're authorized is they've been, we've got them trained on all aspects of it. What I find interesting, and D, you can probably back me up on this too. And and this was this comes from my experience in the oil refineries up in uh, northern Illinois. Is the attendance they uh, for whatever reason, whenever somebody is assigning an attendant, at least in in the refinery I was working in, they basically said that look, you have no other skills. There's nothing else you can you know you don't have any other skills. You can't perform any other work. You can't, you're not a skilled electrician. You're not, we're just going to make you an attendant. And that scares me more than probably anything else, because that person is responsible for the entrance overall safety. Their one job, their one function is to make sure that the entrant comes out in the same condition as they did when they started. And there have been times when I have just seen, oh, well, you know what? You can't do anything else. We're just going to make you an attendant. You're a warm body. We're just going to put you there. But they need to know a lot more about the process and the operation than just, oh, how to crank somebody up out of a hole, for example. And and uh, yeah, on that note, I mean, all three titles on this with the new standard have the responsibility to understand the mode, signs, symptoms, consequences of exposure, the hazards of the space. And so if we're just putting people in because they fit the bill of this, you can't do anything else. So here you're going to be. I, I'm with you, Rick. I think the attendant position is, is probably one of the most crucial that's on there. I mean, I think they're all crucial because somebody's got to make sure it's safe for entry. You've got somebody who's who's got to make sure that they're safe at the entrant. And then you've got the attendant who's kind of overseeing the operation as it's going on. And with them being up on top, a good attendant can make or break one of these things if something were to go wrong. But what we see a lot with the attendants too is multitasking. Uh, You know, if I have a hall watch for an alternate or a non-permit entry, they can do put pipe together, do whatever they need to do. But on a permit required, their sole focus, as you just said it, is the the health and safety of the entrant. That's what their job is, is to be right there at the entry portal. I get people all the time that say, well, how far away can they be? It shouldn't be how far away can they be? How close can I keep them to that space? Because I want them focused on the entrant. I want them as close as they can without entering the space because they can never enter the space. Right, Dee? That is correct. Now, uh, piggybacking off of Eric there, I agree with him. Although the requirement states that they can attend to one or more spaces, I have an issue with that. Are they, a, you know, if you, he has to walk at a distance from one confined space to the other, that attendant is going to be worn out thin the first hour. He's going to be tired out. He's not going to want to tend to one space or the other. He's not giving full attention. Let's remember that that attendant is the last line of of defense. I mean, that is the one person that if anything occurs needs to be there and immediately get a hold of, uh, you know, the rescue team and so forth, you know, but also I have a problem with uh, employers putting someone on light duty there. OSHA says do non-entry rescue. So that being said, that attendant has got to make that attempt to do a non-entry rescue. They're not trained to go into spaces like this. This is their only hope is attempting that non-entry rescue and hoping to get that person out. But they're dealing with dead weight. So they're on light duty. How can they manage? There's no way they're going to be able to do this. When you take a look at the OSHA standard and the list of duties 
for each of these, the authorized entrance, the attendants, and the entry supervisors, the one that has the most duties listed is the attendant because this is a very critical person that is, again, that pivot person, right? They're the pivot person between the authorized entrant and the entry supervisor. That is correct. It's very important that he has continuous uh, communication with these entrants. And he has to make sure that they are all safe in the space. And so he has huge responsibilities. It's not like uh, you mentioned, Rick, before, where they used to get, uh, you know, the the, got the green helper that was coming in and they didn't know how to do anything else. They would sit in there or have them stand outside the confined space and say, hey, just make sure everything's fine and that's it. Now the attendant has huge responsibilities. He also has to know about readings, how to take those readings and and know how to utilize the monitor and who he's going to contact. And it's just so much that that attendant now has. Yeah, and, and part of that too, Dee, and this is what I see everybody focuses on is is the atmospheric issues, you know, monitoring and and all that. What about temperature extremes? Um, you know, heat exhaustion, heat stroke. Somebody peeks their head up, they're beet red and they're bone dry. Recognizing that right away. If it's just a guy who's on light duty, he's not going to know the difference. He, he has no idea. So there are there to your point, there is a much longer list on that. And that's how it should be. But it shouldn't just be somebody who's that's a great point on light duty that just gets shoved in this position. There's so much more to it. So, Eric, is the attendant considered a qualified person or a competent person or is there some type of a different classification of person that we're talking about as far as attendants go? Attendants do need to, you know, be competent in their role. But when we talk about those terms, qualified and and competent person, for the entry supervisor, and Dee gave us the rundown on that, they are a qualified person, and that is actually being defined as somebody who could be a have a certificate or a degree or just professional standing or somebody who's got enough experience in the subject to be able to solve and resolve uh, problems related to that subject matter. And in this case, it's going to be confined spaces. A competent person is somebody who has the ability, has been around long enough, can recognize that things are not right, and has the ability to stop work and correct them. And that's really where your competent or your attendant should be coming into play, being able to understand the readings of the monitor, understand what that all means to them when they look at it. But then also, if something's wrong, stopping work, getting everybody out of the hole, and let's correct and figure out what this problem is. So it's it's kind of a three-headed team that goes on, or three-headed, excuse me, title but it really is a two-person, could be a two-person entry, can be slash positions also. So as long as my entry supervisor has been trained as an attendant and they are both qualified and a competent person, they can fulfill that role. But I, I think when you break it down in that aspect, the attendant really is that competent person. They need to be. But not necessarily exclusive in and of themselves. In other words, a entry supervisor is not always a qualified and competent person. Likewise, the attendant is not always just a qualified or a competent person. That's correct. I obviously, you know, if, if we're training them, I would like to get them to that level, to both levels. So they have that. But yeah, sometimes we're not going to have that. You're going to have a distinct difference between the two. But again, one has the ability to stop work, correct that. The other one has the ability to solve and resolve problems related to the subject matter worded just a little bit differently. And I'd like to add 
The requirement also states that they must be able to communicate with each other, the attendant and the entrant. And it states very clearly, whatever it takes. It can be verbal, it can be visual, and so forth, but there has to be communication between both of them, especially if there is a hazard or a danger in the area. Yeah, I always say have a backup plan. I ask this in, in classes all the time. I say, hey, look, how do you, you know, how do the entrance and the attendants communicate? And usually they say, you know, oh, we got those two-way radios. Okay, that's great. Two-way radios. Do you have another method? Well, we can shout. Okay, that's that's a good one. That's another one. Do you have another nonverbal method of communicating with the attendant? Because let's say, for example, you're down in a particular confined space. You get blasted with a blast of gas. Well, you cannot, that might cause you to not be able to verbally communicate with the attendant. So do you have another method of communicating to the attendant that you might need assistance? In some cases, you know, somebody says, well, maybe some tugs on the on the retrieval line. That's great. You know, that's super. That is a nonverbal method of communicating to the attendant that you might need assistance. About five taps on the side of the vault or the tank or whatever, where or the pipe, for example, that you might be working in. But the point there is, is that have that backup plan, but make sure that everybody is trained in that backup plan. And that's the key so that everybody understands what that is, whether they're the entrant or the attendant, so that everybody knows when that is actually taking place. And, and, and that's a great point, and we really should have brought this up, but having a plan B with these types of entries for almost everything that you do, things are going to go wrong. Something may go wrong. And an example I use in classes with alternate entry, that one piece of equipment that's keeping that space safe for entry is the blower. What if the blower takes a dive? So I've told people, look, at before you allow anybody in, leave the monitor in, turn the blower off. If it's going to take us 30 seconds to get that person extricated, that's great. So let's take a look at, turn the monitor, the blower off, monitors in there. If I don't get any elevations after a minute or two, I'm fine with that 30 seconds. If 10 seconds goes by and I start to see an increase in, in values, I'm going to be, I need a second blower set up, ready to go to replace that first one. Flashlights. A light, having a blackout, a backup plan. If I go into a space that's pitch black and I'll get my helmet light on, that's great. But what if it goes off? Think on the on that side of the air of the, the whole Murphy's Law thing, right? And I have my my pen light or I have another light in my back pocket that I can utilize. So it, it, it is thinking this through and having the conversation ahead of time. And to your point, Rick, having a backup plan. It, it, it's I, We can't stress that enough. Pre-planning for the job, pre-planning for hazards, pre-planning for emergencies and pre-planning for evacuations. That really is what this standard basically comes down to. And it's having that backup plan for each and every one of those steps. I, you are correct, Rick. Having plan B in place is very important. D and I have a lot of experience as far as confined spaces in industry Eric, I know you've done a lot of work in the construction standard, and I know you teach on both of industry confined space standard and the construction confined space standard. Can you talk a little bit, though, about the differences and the similarities between these two? When do you have to follow one versus the other? 
So in a nutshell with this, and OSHA's pretty much clarified it pretty good, and I still get people that say, well, which one do I need? And they may be on the bubble. And if that's the case, I will steer them towards the construction side. What they've come up with now, we have confined spaces in construction specific to the construction industry. The old, older standard, 1910, general industry basically, is, is really more of a maintenance uh, standard now. And the definition that they give or the example that they give is if I were to change out a pole and I replace that pole, pole for pole, no modifications, we put it in, that can be considered maintenance. If it's a new upgraded pole, if I slap a coat of paint on that pole, it now falls under the construction standard. If you've had 1910, you're only covered for that one. If you take 1926, you are covered for both. So if you follow the construction standard, it covers you for the other one. The differences in here, there are some ones that are completely different. And there's, there's most of it has kind of transferred over. But uh, we talked about coordinating activities. That is explicitly discussed in here with the controlling contractor, coordinating if I've got other people working either on or in that same line or near that same line, I have to make sure neither one is going to harm the other one. They define a competent person and having a competent person evaluate that site. And, and again, that definition with competent people, it could be used for excavation, fall protection, scaffolding, and now it is in with the confined space and construction standard. Talks about requiring continuous monitoring whenever possible. I can't come up with a scenario that it wouldn't be possible, so it really should be continuous monitoring at all times. Talking about engulfment hazards, the early warning system, if we were to have a potential engulfment uh, potential upstream, I need to provide somebody or something upstream with enough time to allow that person to get out. And then one of the other ones is, well, two more, uh, is the suspending, being able to suspend a permit now. Now we have that ability. If I'm the entry supervisor along and being the attendant, and maybe I'm supervising another entry nearby, if that other group needs me, I can suspend my permit, pull my person out. I will go over and take care of what's over there, come back, recheck my space. I can allow my person back in and then start that permit back up again. So I don't lose any of that designated time that I've allotted on my permit for that particular job. And then probably the biggest one on this one, and it's the one that generates the most conversation when I talk to people with this, is the requirement to have a, a pre-identified and entry rescue team. So on a permit required space, there is a requirement now that we have to pre-identify an entry rescue team. There is a list of things that need to be done as far as, you know, talking, can they get to me in a timely manner? Can they do what I need them to do? And probably one of the biggest ones too is, will they let me know if they're unavailable? And right now, everybody defaults to the fire departments and, and they are not set up by any stretch for them to be doing this. They're not going to be sitting in a station and doing a standby while we go out and do an entry. They're live station. So every time I get a call from them, hey, we're out, I have to pull my people out, wait till they come back, and then I can go back in. So that component there is something I think that's going to be a work in progress. And that's even if they're willing to make that phone call to you to say that, hey, look, we got another call, we got a split, and we can't be your entry or rescue of choice. I mean, I've a lot of them won't even be able to make that phone call to you to let you know that they're not that they can't be your entry rescue service of choice. And T, I know that, uh, again, we've worked in the oil and gas industry a little bit. A lot of the plants that we worked at, they had their own fire departments right on site. 
That is correct. They train their folks. They have their own rescue team, which I find amazing because they respond, you know, in a couple of minutes they're there. Unlike if you had to get an outside uh, rescue team because you don't know if they're trained or not. Most of these rescue teams are volunteers. And in there are some areas that they have not been trained in heavy rescue. So you have to ask, find out who your nearest local uh, rescue team has been trained. But in the refineries, we find that they do have their rescue teams. They train every 12 months and, you know, they keep up with uh, their all their training and their certifications, you know, CPR and first aids and so forth. Yes, that is correct. And that's, you know, and that's where on a fixed location, you know, with multiple entries, that's what they're going to try and do. Unfortunately, with our contractors, they're transient, right? They're all over the place. And so making that call, and I think it's kind of a shock to people. And I try to pre-warn them, look, you're, you know, if you're in an urban area, odds are you're probably going to get a yes. Now, where that equipment is located, that's going to be a whole other deal. If it's a larger city, they may have it centrally located at one station. If you're on the outskirts of town, it's going to take a little while for that to get to you. But then as you move out of those urban areas, finding places that actually are trained, that's kind of where the the, the struggle comes in. And to Dee's point, you know, yes, they may have it, but at what level? And there would be nothing worse than somebody showing up and going, oh, wait, oh, no, we can't go in that. We don't have the right equipment. And now I'm now I'm toast. I, I've got somebody in there and we can't get them out. So that's that's a whole nother component that needs to get worked on. And, and I don't believe the, the fire departments uh, that that part was was actually thought through or talked about. Yeah, no. And that's and again, just going back to that point, if you are in a rural setting, the closest rescue team that might actually be able to perform that rescue could be 45, 50 minutes, maybe an hour, even more away, depending on where you're at. And when you're talking about an IDLH situation, you have an IDLH atmosphere, that's just not going to be enough time. That's just going to be way too late. And and one thing I want to stress, and I probably should have brought this up at the beginning, but this component of having to pre-identify an entry rescue team, it is irregardless of how you get into the space. If you're going in with a ladder because of configuration or, or you know, issues that I can't, you know, entanglement issues, so I'm not going to use the winch and the tripod, document why we're not. But if I am doing non-entry rescue, my first line of defense is that attendant along with that winch and tripod, but I still have to pre-identify an entry rescue team prior to entry. And we would list them out on our permit, who I spoke with, their phone number, whether it be a direct line or do I have to go through dispatch? Those conversations have to be made. But just because I have an attendant and a winch and tripod, I'm not off the hook. If it's a true permitted entry, you have the requirement to pre-identify an entry rescue team. Plan B. Plan B and Plan C at times, right? Uh, For example, when I went up to Oklahoma, it's right between Texas and Oklahoma. The only thing that divides that town is a stop sign, right? And that's it. And you're talking about rural areas. I say, where is your nearest rescue? Oh, 45 minutes away. And and some of these folks are not trained. So are they going to, I always ask them, are they going to call you back if they get called away in an emergency? I don't see that happening, guys. I'm sorry. I mean, they're going to be too busy trying to get to, you know, the area where they're needed. I don't see them picking up the phone and saying, hey, you know, Rick or Eric, uh, can't make it. Get yourself your plan B, whatever that may be, right? 
Yeah, I, I, I can tell you coming from that side of things, I have a lot of friends still in the industry and the business and, and I talk with them and I've, I've actually talked with a couple of uh, battalion chiefs that are in charge of training and we've had this discussion and kind of came up with, well, I, you know, if, if it could work, you know, I, I talk to whoever it is that runs that, heads that team up, we tell them what we're doing, we get every, all of that aspect done. I personally would tell that person, get a hold of their dispatch center. Tell them that you're going to be doing an entry between 8 and 12. Uh, I just spoke with Joe at Station 3. If you send them out, would you please call me? And they'll typically write themselves a note or something on there. So I would rather get two phone calls if they are, you know, can't call me. But the scenario that I use on this is what if they get a call for a mass casualty incident? There's a shooting somewhere. I, I'll be honest with you. Do you really think that they're thinking about you and your permitted entry or where they're headed to and bullets are flying? It, it's the latter by far. And so if I don't get that call and something goes wrong, now what? I've got nobody to come and get them out. So if, if I get two phone calls because they're out of the station every time, so be it. I, I have no problem with that, but I do want to be notified. Yeah, I'll tell you what, this could be an entire conversation in and of itself. I, you know, we could sit here and talk about rescues all day long and the, the requirements for this, because this is probably one of those areas in this standard that does create a lot of confusion for customers out in the job site. OSHA speak is difficult to read to begin with. Now you're talking about emergency and rescue services, which is such a key, important point and emphasis when we're talking about entry into confined spaces that it really does need to be clarified. And that's kind of what we're talking about here as far as this entire conversation is concerned. We really wanted to focus and emphasize some of the key terms that you really come across when you're talking about confined spaces in construction uh, entry. And then likewise, kind of make people understand that, hey, look, more training is needed than just this conversation. So we really do want to encourage you to, if you are going to, into confined spaces on a continuous basis, make sure that you are finding a good quality training program to actually go through so that you can really understand this standard, not just be able to read it, not just be able to recite it, but also to understand it because you need to know the law, you need to understand how to interpret the law, and you need to understand how to be compliant with the law. And those three aspects really need to be disseminated to each and everybody who is going to be working in these particular areas. And one thing about this standard, too, is that's nice. If you have taken a full 1926 subpart AA course in any state, it's valid wherever you go. There are not differences between all the states. Everybody has adopted this fully, this construction standard. So unlike some of the others where we have to you know, learn this standard, plus now I've got to figure out in this state, what do I need to do? What's going on? The only thing with, with this one is, is you may find a few numbers, but it is accepted in all 50 states. This has been Behind the Standards with United Rentals. For more discussion on this topic, join us for a confined space webinar on January 26th, hosted by Joe Wise and Bruce McGee. To register, go to www.trenchsafetyevents.com or follow the link located on the homepage of this episode and select webinar. On behalf of D. Eric and myself, thanks for listening in. Have a great day and stay safe.